Isaiah chapter 9. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The Lord has sent a message against Jacob. It will fall on Israel. All the people will know it, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say with pride and arrogance of their heart, the bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with dressed stone. The figs have been felled, but we will replace them with cedars. But the Lord has strengthened Rezin's foes against them and has spurred their enemies on. Arameans from the east and Philistines from the west have devoured Israel with open mouth. Yet for all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. But the people have not returned to him who struck them, nor have they sought the Lord Almighty. So the Lord will cut off from Israel both head and tail, both palm branch and reed in a single day. The elders and dignitaries are the head, the prophets who teach lies are the tail. Those who guide this people mislead them, and those who are guided are led astray. Therefore the Lord will take no pleasure in the young men, nor will he pity the fatherless and widows. For everyone is ungodly and wicked, every mouth speaks folly. Yet for all this his anger is not turned away, his hand is still upraised. Surely... Wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It sets the forest thickets ablaze so that it rolls upwards in a column of smoke. By the wrath of the Lord Almighty, the land will be scorched and the people will be fuel for the fire. They will not spare one another. On the right, they will devour but still be hungry. On the left, they will eat but not be satisfied. Each will feed on the flesh of their own offspring. 
Manasseh will feed on Ephraim and Ephraim on Manasseh. Together they will turn against Judah. Yet for all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. Now, let's uh, look at God's word together, shall we? From silliness, let's be serious. It's that time of year that we need to think about Christmas services, but also we need to think about our streets. If you go down most of your uh, streets, there is a new phenomena that we've stolen from America, like all bad things, and it's the tyranny of the lights. At this time of year, if you go down Chesington Road, there's a wonderful house that spends about three weeks getting ready to save uh, all its time and energy throughout the year to put up all the lights. That's not it. That's probably the Griswold house from one of those awful films in the 80s. But uh, there's a house just down our road that does this for charity. It's a great cause that you can go and look at it just down, about 10 doors down from our house. If you're on the way to, from Chesington uh, to Epsom, you would have seen already this great part of the original nativity story, which is an inflatable helicopter. It's on top of a car <laughs> with propellers that spin. Lights are everywhere at this time of year, are they not? It's a great trend. Lights are on the inside of our house, lights are on the outside as well. So at this house, just 10 doors down from us, there is a fake astroturf, there's fake snow, there is reindeer in the plenty. There's even a projection screen, top right-hand window of Father Christmas having a mince pie. It's there for the next three weeks. Go and give money. They support a different charity each year. There's the plug. But we need light, do we not? Because if you look outside, since it's not a Sunday morning, it's pitch black. And if you notice in this passage, light has entered the world. And we need light. Why? Because of the darkness. Look at chapter 9, verse 1 and verse 2. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. As distress, there's fear, there's trepidation in the people of Israel's hearts. Verse 2, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. There's a parallel on those living in the land of the shadow of death, light has dawned. Whether you're 800 years before the birth of Jesus when Isaiah was written, when you live in 2019, or whether you're five years old or 55 years old, all of us, all of us need to understand how to handle the dark. And that's what this passage and what Christmas claims to help us to do. That's the first point. Christmas and Isaiah 9 is about how to handle the dark. In verse 1 and verse 2, you have a number of times the theme of darkness that has been growing throughout the book of Isaiah. We don't just want to jump onto a Christmas text or a Christmas passage. So where does this fit? Well, it's nearly 3,000 years ago. We're down south, not up north in Israel, we're down south in Judah. And chapters 1 to 12, that's the first unit of the book of Isaiah, speaks of, speaks of the issue of kingship. Who is the real king? If you read the first three or four sentences of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah's ministry was under four kings, all who struggled to obey God's commands and keep God's rules. They were far from him. And because they were far from him, God's people were far from him. And so in chapter 2, you can read of idolatry. Rather than worshipping the true, the only living God, God's people were worshipping everyone and everything. 
And this theme of darkness and distress is growing and brewing like a, a menacing Chris Nolan theme from one of his films like Batman. It's just rumbling along and then it gets louder and louder so that by the time you get to chapter 8, verse 19 and following, there's three sentences just before our passage, you've got men and women consulting, verse 19 of chapter 8, they're consulting mediums and spiritualists who whisper and mutter, should not our people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? There's darkness, verse 20, because there's no light to dawn. They've got no help to give. They've got no wisdom, no counsel. They don't know their right hand from their left spiritually. And Isaiah is saying, why are you looking down when you should be looking up? Why are you looking in darkness when you should be looking to the source and giver of light? Why do you think you're so distressed and crushed and perplexed? because you're looking for the answers in the wrong places. And then like Gandalf coming down the hillside, three days after he said he would with the Battle of Helm's Deep, you read like a sonic boom these famous sentences from the darkness and the, the despair, the, the absence of hope, the crushing weight of hopelessness, comes verse 1. Nevertheless, says Richard Burton, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. They're crushed by shattered dreams. They're crushed by the, the consequences of poor choices. And so they're walking in darkness. Verse 2 says, though, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And there's a parallelism here from the weightiness and the fear. We can see from the Hebrew parallelism Two ways of saying the same thing, that actually they're talking about death. Sentence two is very interesting. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. That's the first uh, part of the sentence, and then it's repeated in a slightly different, different way. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Literally, Hebrew says, in death, darkness. Talk about graphic language. Here is a people... There's an, this is metaphorically, there's no light in this land of darkness. There's no hope, it's despair. There's no God, it's man-centered. And here it's described as death, darkness. The same thing is said in two different ways to make a very serious and deathly serious point. Isaiah is saying, as he's inspired by the Spirit of God, the shadow of death is cast over everything for God's people. And it's the same 3,000 years ago nearly as it is today, isn't it? Death is the great shadow over all of our lives. I was in Nescott this week looking at uh, Mark chapter 5 and I said to uh, a young man who, who comes along, what do you think society's view of death is? And he says, quote, sanitised. He's very articulate. We sanitise death. We're scared of it. We try and hide away from it. And you could think, well, that's just back then. Isaiah 9, 3,000 years ago, this is a primitive people. Just like in the 17th century, if you had 15 or 17 children, like a, a minister in Boston on the other side of the Atlantic, there was a man who was a minister for 30 years in the city of Boston. He had 15 kids and he buried 13 of them. That experience is just like it was 3,000 years ago. You would have many children, but in reality, very few of them would see adulthood. And surely that time has passed. I don't think it has. We've just sanitised death. We're still under the shadow of death, just like they were, so are we. Health has improved dramatically. 
healthcare and the resources of the NHS are stretched, but the efforts they make to help are great and worthwhile. We cannot say that was then, but this is now. Our society doesn't want to age, let alone die. We do all we can to exercise, nip and tuck here and there, tone, slim down. We don't want to get old. We certainly don't want to die. We do all we can to whitewash away the reality of death. And here it says, the people walking in darkness, verse 2, have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death. A light has dawned. That was then, but it's also now. And it was also in the time of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor, and he loved Jesus very, very dearly. The picture of him here, not someone you want to mess with from that picture. But uh, he, uh, he rose uh, to uh, preeminence when he travelled from Germany as Hitler rose up and the Nazi party grew in its influence and sway. Bonhoeffer got on a boat or a plane and he flew from Europe all the way over to New York and there he taught and his influence and reputation grew. He was there for about a year and as his reputation grew in academia, as he taught more people, he had friends who, who said, you need to stay here. You're doing a great work teaching people, teaching pastors and training others, teaching them about God. Don't go back to Germany, whatever you do, stay here. And he says, no, no, I must go back. I know it's dangerous, but the church in Germany needs me. Hitler is a dangerous man. The Nazi party are growing in influence. And so back he went. These are my people. I've got to serve them. I've got to be part of this. Bonhoeffer went back. He resisted. He protested. He was arrested. And then he was executed. He knew he was going to be executed and he wrote this to a friend just before he lost his life. He said, with the shadow of death, 70, 60 years ago, something like that, death is the supreme festival on the road to freedom. Death is the supreme festival on the road to freedom. Now, how could Bonhoeffer say that? Because a light has dawned. How can any Christian say that, not be afraid of death? Because a light has dawned. Isaiah 9, verse 2, a people walking in darkness have seen a great light. It's true 3,000 years ago, and it's true in Bonhoeffer's day, and it's true in our day as well. How could Bonhoeffer say that? Face execution with courage and without fear. Darkness all around him in Nazi Germany. Oppression. Verse 9, uh, verse 2 of chapter 9 could have been said of Germany as well. It's a, it's a land of the shadow and the stench of death. But what did he believe? Darkness all around him, his shadow and the fear of death. But he believed that Jesus Christ had made a journey from another world to this world. Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the debt for the human race, owed against justice, owed against the sins that we committed against God. But because he died believing that reality, there was no fear for him. Nothing that he had done in his past, he wasn't perfect. There was no danger and there was no fear of death for him because he trusted Jesus. No fear of man, no fear of death. He wasn't afraid of anything. That's why he could go back from the comfort of America to Germany to stand up for Jesus. He wasn't afraid of death. He wasn't afraid of losing uh, people's affections towards him or a good job. He didn't care about comfort. He didn't care about affluence, money, sex, power. He wasn't interested in that. 
because a light had dawned in his heart. So he could go from security to danger. Nothing frantic about him as he faced death. He wasn't afraid of anything. How? Because there's light in the darkness. And it's the gospel. And it's Jesus Christ. It's the person who entered into history. And so any Christian in any age can live with confidence. Any situation, any part of the world, there can be a Christian without fear. Why? How? 9 verse 2. There's light in the darkness. That's what Christmas is all about. In this dark world, there is hope. And his name is Jesus, and he's the gift of God. It's the second point. Christmas is about how to handle the darkness. Christmas is also about how to open a gift. How to open a gift. The rest of this text is about that reality, the gospel, that Bonhoeffer understood in his heart and that you can understand too. The language about this text and throughout the text as we proceed quickly now, because it's so rich, is the difference between merit and grace. What do I mean? Merit and grace. Look at sentence four. For as in the day of Midian's defeat. Now I've just read this in the Bible. This is from Judges chapter seven. Uh, Gideon had, was raised up by God to deliver his people and he raised up a massive army to take and defeat the Midianites. And God said, no, that's too many. That's too many. You just need a few hundred. You just need a few. And there's a great story you can read in Judges 7 about that uh, historical event. But the point is this. God is saying, not by might, not by force, but by my grace, by my power, will this victory happen. It's about God's grace, not human ability. It's about God's power, not human strength. And so verse 5 is also true. Every warrior's boot used in battle, every machine gun, you could say, every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. Why? This king, remember it's about kings? Isaiah 1 to 12. This king, the deliverance that this son will bring, not by your might, not by your strength, but by my grace, will I defeat all your enemies. This child who's going to be born will bring means that you don't need to contribute anything to his rescue plan. No military hardware, no AK, whatever, no rocket launcher thingies, no pistols, no knives. You don't need any of those. God will bring it all. So burn all your weapons. Burn all your warriors' boots and garments. God provides everything. You contribute nothing. It's grace versus merit. Then we get to verse 6. How's it going to happen? For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. This journey, this warrior is a baby. It's so laughable. It's like a comedy. But it's true. And who is this son? Who is this child? Verse 6. He's the mighty God who came into history physically, Christians believe, who came into history literally, historically, he was weaned. He is covered in blood and amniotic fluid and stuff like that. That makes you marvel at the incarnation that this sweaty baby, covered in blood and goo, is the mighty God. It's the wonder of the incarnation. It's different from every other religion. Buddha, Muhammad, 
Confucius. They all had stories about what had happened in their lives. They all did miraculous things, or so their religious books claim. And they have value, and you have value, to the degree that you follow and do what they say you must do. Those stories happen, and it doesn't really affect your salvation. But here, this is where Christianity stands or falls, you could say. That God, mighty God, enters history. Every other religion says it's about you and what you do. It's merit. Christianity is about grace. Gideon, you've got too many people. I don't want you to think it's about what you can do. It's about what I've done. It's about my strength. Merit against grace. Every other religion says, you follow my rules. You learn the way that I say. I'm your great teacher. And Jesus is completely different. He says, I'm not your, just your teacher. I'm your saviour. I'm your rescuer. And so it's so important that we say, with the artists of old, a child is born not just to us. In Christianity, a child is born for us. Unto us a child is given. For to us a child is given. For to us a child is born. Jesus Christ, mighty God, was born. He had to live. He had to die. That's Christianity. He's not just born. He's born for us. He's not just living. He is living for us. He's not just dying. He's dying in our place. He's dying for us. He's our substitute. He's our representative. He dies in our place. That's the heartbeat of Christianity. Because if Christmas was just a great story, it would actually be very depressing. It's not just beautiful. It's not just inspiring. Actually, it'd be crushing. It would be depressing. If it's down to me, Christianity, if it was about law-keeping, would crush you. Just think of the Sermon on the Mount at the start of the year. But, but if Christmas really happened, if Jesus was born for us, if he lived for us, if he died for us, paying our debt on the cross, then Christmas is great news. It's historical news. And it's good news that we need to herald. It's good news that we need to be confident in. It's good news that enables us to see hope in a land of deep darkness living in the shadow of death. And that's why it's about opening a gift. If it's great news about mighty God becoming a child, then it's great news that we want to open as a gift. It's the third point. Christmas is about understanding how to live in the dark, and it's about a gift, and I want us to think about the gift. At least three things. We could spend a long time on this, but we don't have it. Here are three things that I want you to see about the gift, who is Jesus. There are four great names here in sentence six, verse number six. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. First thing, if you understand the gift, the mystery of the incarnation, it's about this word, mystery. Here's one thing I'd love for you to do, to understand the mystery afresh, and that I would love for myself. Understand the mystery of the incarnation, God becoming a baby at this Christmas time. When you become a Christian, it should make you deeply mystical. What do I mean? Because that is a very abused word. It's understanding the incarnation. If you cannot say wow at the incarnation, if you think you fully grasped it or understood it, I think you're in grave danger. It's too marvelous for me. 
It's too marvellous for the fathers of the church because the one who is born in this manger is not only mighty God, he's, verse 6, he's the everlasting father. At the first Christmas you have on a bed of straw somewhere because there's no room at the inn, you have the God who made and sustains and who created and who rules and who reigns over the whole of the human cosmos. All that we can see and understand and everything else that we can't. Lying as product of a virgin's womb. He's your king. He's your great God. <laughs> this, this awesome creator has come close because he wants to be your father, says verse 6. It's about intimacy. That's why Christianity is unique. It's about intimacy. God is not just far off. He's not just transcendent, all-powerful, all-knowing. He's all-loving. And he's your everlasting father. He wants to be your father. When I was in Nescott on Tuesday, in Mark 5, remember the story of Jesus taking in his hand a dead girl's little hand. And he said these precious words, Talitha kum, little girl, honey, honey, get up. Just asleep. The little girl was just asleep, but she was dead. He's so tender. Here's a God who's so tender and yet Jesus cries out as he grows up to be a man, dying for the sins of the world. He cries out on the cross, why have you forsaken me? And here's a God who has moved heaven and earth to get close to you. We're not the centre of the story. God's glory is the centre of the story. But twinned with that, God's glory is seen most wonderfully when he rescues a people for himself. So you can have a personal relationship with him. See, God is not just a concept, not just a force. He's personal, but he's also the everlasting father. It's wonder. Do you realise, Christian friend, someone who's interested in Christianity, the claim of the gospel is that the God who made the whole universe loves you and wants to know you personally. That's enough fuel for wonder. Let's move on. Secondarily, it gives you understanding of the world. Look at sentence seven. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He, this baby, will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. See how many times the word peace comes up? Jesus is not just everlasting Father. He's not just mighty God. Sentence six, he's the Prince of Peace. Sentence seven, there it is again. The increase of his government and peace. This Hebrew word is shalom, it's complete wholeness. It's not just the white dove from above flowing and floating above waters. It's not just peace of the United Nations, it, it's bigger than that. It's putting everything wrong in the world right. And here we have of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. There will come a time through the birth of this baby and some point in the future where humans will flourish where there's disease, there will be health. Where there's death, there will be life. Where there's hunger and alienation, there will be restitution and reconciliation. That's a, just on a human level, but also between God and humanity because of Jesus' birth and the cross of Christ. In other words, you understand that whether Brexit happens or not, whether the person in uh, number 10 is blue, red or pink or green, whatever mixture it may or may not be, 
We know as Christians where history is heading. We know what the future will be. The increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign, it's certain, on David's throne. There will be a time where he will rule and establish justice and righteousness. The future is secure and safe. And so Christians can not just look death in the face with confidence, but also the future. Helps you to understand history. Thirdly, finally, Christmas makes you free to be emotional. It's joy. There is joy in the wonderful counsellor. There's a lot of uh, emotions at Christmas, isn't there? Thanks again for buying me another shaving stick. I really, I just put it with my selection. Um, I really need those socks again. You know, there's a lot of joy at Christmas. Notice my tone. But look at verse 6. Jesus is the wonderful counsellor. The counsellor who brings wonder. Wonder that means beauty, that means joy. Yep, Starbucks has the poster most years. Celebrate wonder. And then there's a coffee cup or a latte thingy that's got 14,000 calories in it or something like that. Exaggeration, but not, not, not by much. But here we have, when you know this baby who is the wonderful counsellor, you have the source of joy that no one can ever take away. Imagine, please, Christian friend, if there was in your heart and experience and person a subterranean, a beneath-the-surface reservoir of joy. Not happiness, joy that can never be taken away. Wouldn't that change you? If you could remind yourself today and up to Christmas and beyond who Jesus is. He's the wonderful counsellor. He's mighty God, he's great, but he's also the God who's come close. If you know the wisdom that Jesus has and the, the wonderful closeness that he brings, you could invest yourself in other people's lives. You could navigate this complex world with gender and social ethics issues and understanding big stuff because you know God personally and you're a, a man or woman of the book. If you meditated on the person and work of, of Jesus this Christmas, that subterranean river of joy would only increase. Here's something I'd love you to do. Why did God create the world? It wasn't because he was lacking. It wasn't because he needed. Well, that would diminish his glory. Why does he want us to praise him and glorify him forever? Why is that our chief end? Why is that our... Why is that our, our heartbeat and our joy if we're Christians? God created the world because he, not because he needed anything, but because he wanted to share the joy. He wanted us to enjoy his person and his work, to enjoy his promises and his sufficiency and his beauty and his love. That's the whole reason God created the universe. And here's something I'd love you to do. It's not enough, friends, from verse 6 to think that God is wise. It's not enough. He is the wonderful counsellor. Do you appreciate that? Here's something I'd love you to do this week. Don't take 10 minutes or five, it's not enough. Take 15 minutes, that's not a lot. Take 15 minutes to meditate on verse six. Use that as fuel in your heart and think about who is your God? He's the wonderful counsellor. It's not enough just to say that he's wise. 
He's the wonderful counselor. He's a heroic God. He's the everlasting father. He's the prince of peace, the prince of shalom. Take 15 minutes and drill down on that, meditate on that, steep that into your heart. If you're a drawy, notey-taking person, get some paper and a mug of tea in an arty kind of area or with artisan bread, wherever you need to go. Turn your phone off, take 15 minutes and meditate on the person of Jesus Christ. And that will be great fuel for your heart on cold days and on warm days. That's what Christmas is about, isn't it? Meditating on the beauty of King Jesus. Opening the gift, receiving it afresh. Thinking about all that Jesus has done to win your salvation. For your good, for his glory. Let's pray.